Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Journalist William Belifo once said, a gambler is nothing but a man who makes his living out of hope. Now, I don't know how many people really think about the impact that gambling has on the global economy, but according to Jeremy Olson, who writes for a website called Online United States Casinos, he says that casino gaming and sports betting are multi-billion dollar industries. He also goes on to explain how each country and nation has their own laws related to gambling and have a little bit of a different approach to the industry, which is really an outgrowth of cultural preferences and just the country's history as a whole. Now, I thought it'd be fun to spend some time talking about the economics of gambling, and today's guest is really an expert in that area. His name is Marty Goldman. He's the Senior Vice President for Global Casino Operations with Carnival Corporation and PLC. He leads a team of 2,600 casino professionals, both on the shore as well as those on ship, charged with driving the business for the travel and leisure giants, nine global brands, and over 100 ships. Marty has 30 years' experience in the gaming and hospitality industry. He has a diverse career that covers five continents, and he has executive-level responsibility for the largest, most prestigious gaming, travel, and leisure companies in the world. He started his career actually in the lottery industry in the early 90s, and he spent 10 years both in the public and private sectors of that industry as it blossomed from traditional lottery games into casino-like entertainment such as Keno and gaming operations. He then transitioned into the casino industry with Harris Entertainment, which many of you may know became Caesars Entertainment later on. That was in 2002, and he gained an expertise in opening new properties, including Harris Resort in San Diego, and also in major gaming markets such as Atlantic City, and handled turnaround situations such as the London Clubs International. Since 2012, Marty has led Carnival Corporation's global casino business, implementing key marketing strategies, game development, capital improvements, and major strategic partnerships driving revenue contribution for the corporation to unprecedented heights. Marty resides with his wife, Madeline, who happens to be my sister, which means he's my brother-in-law. They're down in San Diego, where they're both actively involved in a number of charitable associations, and I have to say probably have two of the cutest cats you'll ever see. So it's my pleasure to welcome today to Upthinking Finance, Marty Goldman coming to us from San Diego. Marty, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me, Emerson. It's a pleasure. Awesome. So why don't we start? I mean, you've got a huge amount of experience and background in a diverse sectors of the gambling industry. Maybe just start to build a foundation on the history, casino gambling, lottery gambling, sports betting. I added the ponies. Maybe they just fall under sports. I don't really know. I've never been a big gambler. I guess that's probably good for the clients of mine that are listening. But for everybody else, maybe just kind of lay out sort of a framework of the history and kind of how things have evolved somewhat. Sure. No, happy to. I guess huge backgrounds, euphemism for older than the hills, but that's okay. I own that. It's all right. So anyway, I think one thing that's interesting about gaming is People nowadays think it's fairly recent, right, that Las Vegas has been around 60 years and other regional casinos here and throughout the world. But you look at the history of gaming, and this is true facts, if you research it, that one of the first lotteries ever unearthed goes back several thousand years, and it's in China, and the lottery proceeds built the Great Wall of China. So it's been around a long time. If you fast forward a couple centuries, you go to the Roman Empire, a lot of the great artifacts that we all visit when we go to Rome came from proceeds from lottery. And fast forward several more hundred years, then 
kicked into high gear both in Europe and in the United States in the mid-1800s. Then there was a little hiatus as there was some politicians putting their hand in the honey jar, so to speak, and then resurfaced. I can't believe that. No, I can't believe that would happen, and we're not going there today. But back in the late 50s, early 60s, the lottery resurfaced in the United States has been going extremely strong for the last 60, 65 years. Lottery is the most prevalent form of gaming, although many in the industry call it soft gaming because it's, I bet a dollar here, I bet $5 here, I'll bet on Mega Millions when it hits that modest sum of a billion dollars. Like it, I think it's $1.1 billion today as we go to press, as they say. But lotteries have evolved tremendously. And I started out in the lottery industry from the pick three, pick four sort of daily games to lotto games to the mega jackpot games of Powerball and Mega Millions. Then lotteries became crossing over into the casino space. When I was in the industry, Kino was a game that started to proliferate in lottery gaming. Then video lottery, which were modified slot machines, took place. And in many jurisdictions, not just here in the United States, but throughout the world, that lotteries also supervise casinos, i.e. in Canada, British Columbia. So it's really been a blurring of the lines. But lotteries typically have been the most prevalent. There's the highest penetration of gaming, particularly as jackpots raise globally, and have been around a long time. Now, the proceeds, and we can get into that a little later, proceeds of lotteries vary by state, by jurisdiction. Most of the states go back into the state's coffer. Some are in the general fund, which is the general fund that is then divvied up by legislators. Some have specific targets. For example, I worked in Georgia at the Georgia Lottery for a couple of years, and they had a wonderful program called the Hope Scholarship. And that was every high school senior who maintained an average of B or better got free college, four years of college in a state university. Fabulous benefit. Fabulous. Unfortunately, I moved before my kids were of college age. I blew that one. But it just shows you the kinds of benefits where those funds go on a state-by-state, country-by-country basis. And again, lotteries are prevalent throughout the world. So I'll, I'll dive into the next biggie, and that's casino games. The history is, does not go back to ancient China, didn't build the Great Wall, but people have been rolling the dice in some form or another for centuries as well, whether it's a dice game, card game, poker, blackjack, Slot machines are a little newer, only a couple hundred years old, but there's been a very variety of forms of gaming during the course of history, and it really taken off within North America, particularly the United States, over the last 70, 80 years. Most of you know the history of Las Vegas and went from a tiny little desert town to the mecca of gaming over the last 60 years. Gaming is the number one industry in Las Vegas, but what has brewed outside of that is one little known fact that most folks don't know that everybody thinks the money's all in the gaming revenue, right? Now, non-gaming revenue, which is everything else except whether it's hotel, food and beverage, entertainment, etc., actually eclipses gaming revenue within Las Vegas. So it's part of that entertainment, and we like to call the gaming entertainment industry, that is a big part of what that's all about. Now, over the last 30-some years, What's also ticked up is regional gaming within the United States in markets like Atlantic City, in markets in Illinois, in Chicago, in Louisiana, Tahoe, other markets that have expanded, and then followed by Native American gaming, which has been around almost 40 years now, and that allowed Indian tribes, recognized Indian tribes, to 
run their own casinos. That actually eclipses the commercial casino gaming revenue within the United States now. So huge businesses been proliferating for years. They've been expanding their offerings, changing their offerings. And I think another piece is that they've gotten into very sophisticated marketing programs. Loyalty marketing is at the tip of the top in terms of the gaming industry. Many other industries have stolen those best practices from gaming to figure out how to create loyalty among their guests. All right. So you haven't even gotten to sports betting yet, but I got to ask you. So, I mean, I can already see this can go off in a bazillion directions. So my question is, because you mentioned this regional, like places like Illinois and Atlantic City and whatever, and then also the Indian casinos, what's driving the expansion? I mean, I suppose you could just say simply demand for gambling, but it seems to me there's got to be something else besides, you know what I mean? There's got to, obviously, it, it must be a great, this is a revenue source for these. Oh, absolutely. So every state, typically, as legislation gets created within that state, there is a tax of some form and it varies tremendously by state upon the gaming revenue. So a commercial operator, let's say, comes in and in, if I have my numbers remembered correctly, in Las Vegas, they'll get 8% of all game net gaming revenue goes to the state of Nevada as a source of income. And then the state uses it for whatever purpose they decide. Other states, Illinois, as I mentioned, is a good example. The state of Maryland is a good example. New York is a good example, have much higher tax thresholds. So when new gaming operators go in, most of those, if I have my numbers correct, are in the 50% range in terms of the tax implications. So commercial operators, they may be more of a strategic move than it is a commercial move to go into those jurisdictions. And as I said, that loyalty programs are a big part of the play. So a major operator, MGM, Caesars, who have you, that may go into a jurisdiction and leverage the players in one jurisdiction to another. They'll milk that loyalty so they can own that customer. So they may only make 50 cents on the dollar here, but they may make 90 cents on the dollar here. So owning relationships are an important part of that business. So the MGM gamer who is, spends most of their time in Las Vegas goes to New York. They're likelier to stay loyal to the brand for whatever reason. Irks. Okay, I get If you're it. a frequent hotel guest for business travel and you're a Bonvoy loyalist, you're going to try to stay at a Bonvoy property versus a Hilton property and vice versa. No, that makes sense. So here's a question. And this is probably jumping ahead, but I was thinking about lottery players. I mean, are there any kind of demographics that go into that? Or I'm thinking of like a scratcher, right? You basically go into the mini mart. Is this stuff strategic or is it just kind of you just put it out there as sort of it's like a throw it enough stuff availability out there? Yeah, it's a great question. So every game has different demographics that scratch games are great great question because what you try to do when you develop scratch games. So I came from the lottery industry, so I did a lot of scratch games, but I also offer scratch games aboard my cruise ships. And the way you do it is you're trying to develop different themes and structures that appeal to everybody. So you may like this game. Somebody else may like that game. Somebody else might like a third game where our hope would be that you have something for everybody and you have different types of payout structures, different type of themes. So what do you do on a cruise ship? You have your top prize being you win a cruise or you could win a cruise for life. So you try to go with the flow in terms of the marketing of those games and appeal to everybody. Other games vary. So I'll go back to the Mega Millions jackpot. Somebody may not play that until it hits $100 million. Oh, I don't need to win. I wouldn't mind it. But somebody say, I don't want to play until it hits $100 million or a billion because that's when it means something to me. So back to your question on demographics. 
it will change as the jackpot will go. And that's the same with almost every lottery game, depending on how it is. And we're in the midst of looking at various lottery games right now. And we'd like to have something that plays well on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, and possibly on an enterprise-wide basis. We could have 100 ships that are playing the same game and has a jackpot that could be potentially life-changing down the road. So... Real quick, because I want to get into the sports betting, too. Are there any states that you're aware of that have not legalized the lottery? I mean, I know there was a point some point. Oh, okay. I think they're going to be holdouts. Hawaii is a well-known one, has no forms of legal gambling right now. Utah, no forms of legal gambling right now. And there's a couple of holdouts there. May or may never have it. But there's some that have just decided not to do that. Now, could they potentially have illegal gaming involved? Sure. But that's a little bit under. And as we get into sports gaming, we can talk a little bit more of that. But these are all unique decisions. And just one second, if I could. One thing you see traditionally in throughout the country and actually throughout the world is that gaming will proliferate typically when there's tight economic times. The reason being that the states have challenges meeting their budget. So if they say, I can get a half a billion dollars by implementing X, we might consider it at that time where if the coffers are full, they may feel political pressure not to legalize something. So that has changed over the years. It ebbs and flows based on economic conditions. Okay, that's interesting because then, well, first of all, Utah, It's now that you mentioned it, living here, I never even noticed. I've never been one to really be drawn to that stuff. I guess, like I said before, that's good for my financial planning clients to hear. But although some would argue, you know, the stock market investing is gambling too, but regardless. But there's another side of that coin that's interesting. So if the state's having tax revenue problems, there's an incentive to try and bring in more revenue. And then you've got the other side, which means if the state's having problems, that means people are having problems. I wonder how much likelier if there's like a desperation element where there's more draw to stuff like this to try to just get out of a hole, that economic hole that sometimes people can find themselves in when things are difficult. Is there any correlation? Yeah. And that's been the age old question for years and years. And I think one thing to highlight, because I'm very close to responsible gaming and how to run your business, that if you look at studies over the years and there's going to be some disagreement that 1% of players typically may have some kind of issue. And it may vary by game, it may vary by jurisdiction, it may vary, but generally speaking, that's the accepted number. Is that a good number? No. Zero is the good number. But you also look at people who have problems in other areas. So maybe it's the compulsive eaters, they're having alcohol or drug abuse issues, and the percentages do not vary tremendously off of those. Again, it's I'm not here to cure ills of society, but compulsive gaming is an issue. It typically hits people who have compulsive behavior in one area or another. And I think our job as gaming operators is always to be ahead of that curve. We train all every single one of our dealers in how to spot irresponsible gaming, and you cut those people off. You catch everybody? No. And there's some people better than others in hiding it? Absolutely. But where I like the cruise industry is that is not their primary reason for the visit. They're there to have fun on a cruise. You go to a land-based casino, if you're there for six hours, it's probably a little different story, but they also have strong measures in place to spot those people as well. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Sports betting. 
Sports betting. Okay, this is a hot topic throughout the U.S. And the reason it's the hot topic is you may remember in the dark days or years ago, the only place you could really legally bet on sports was in Nevada, Las Vegas, Tahoe, any of the smaller casinos there. What happened, there was a bill, and I won't get into the details, that prohibited sports betting for years and years that was introduced, I think it's 64 And that one was stricken by the Supreme Court in 17, I believe it is. What that did is opened up every single state in the country to legalize it if they wanted to. And today, if I have my numbers correct, there's 36 states that have since legalized sports betting. And that's where you see this proliferation of sports betting throughout the country. The major suppliers coming in thinking there's a gold mine involved. But what it has done is there was a huge illegal sports betting market, the guy down on your corner drugstore who would be taking bets illegally. Now, I don't know if that's still happening or not, but the ability to wager either at a casino or on your phone via a sports betting app has changed the lay of the land from that perspective. The numbers are very large. The one thing I'll say from a player perspective is that the hold or the win-slash-lose factor, is lower in sports than it is in other forms of gaming. So people win more in sports than other forms. And some could say that it's an educated play. It's not just gaming. So do fantasy sports, fan like DraftKings and fantasy leagues, are they all considered part of sports gambling, or is that something else? Well, it's confusing because the DraftKings of the world came into being because of fantasy sports. But what happened as the bill came on board and legalized it, the DraftKings and FanDuel's of the world's are the number one supplier to the gaming industry, to the sports betting industry. They still do their fantasy bet, but they have legal sports betting where you can actually wager on the games. They're two different things. So fantasy sport, it's not considered gambling. Well, you can argue on that, but it's different from sports betting where you're actually wagering on teams to win or lose. In fantasy, you pick players and their points get aggregated, so you make up your own fantasy team. Yeah, no, I've actually gotten into that, although I haven't been involved in a money league except for a one NHL thing last year. But to me, that's something you're actually, like you said, there's some kind of a, you know, you're making decisions on players, you're making shifting rosters based on some stuff. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, some uneducated people may be picking a lot of Pittsburgh Steelers players or something versus Ravens. Spoken by the Baltimore Ravens fan. Good for you, Marty. Glad you got the Steelers digging there. Okay. So, I started this off with a quote from a guy who writes, um, I sent you that yesterday from that Jeremy Olson who writes for this online United States casino website. And he he was talking about the impact of the multi-billion dollar industry that gambling is, but it's not just the gaming aspect. There's all these ancillary benefits. And I know you touched on some revenue to the municipality or the community or whatever, but there's also a lot of other industries that benefit. Do you mind maybe digging into that a little bit? Sure. So if you you just kind of think through the process, right? Gaming resorts are just that, resorts. So they have food and beverage. So you can imagine the food chain and thinking about the food suppliers that do that. The hotel side, thinking about a 3,000 room hotel, all of the goods that they need to purchase to complete each room. Think about the jobs that are created. And the latest total I've seen just in the casino industry in the U.S., there's well over 700,000 employees throughout the U.S. That's just in the casino biz. Think about lottery. So you got well over a million people gainfully employed in the industry. 
There's all other ancillary benefits. When I was in the lottery industry, we used to talk about the nutritional impact of the business. So in the lottery business, digital lotteries or online lotteries have certainly proliferated, but still the physical purchase of a ticket at a lottery retailer is still the primary way to play the game. So those lottery retailers get a percentage of sales, a percentage of cashing. Most jurisdictions have a bonus for large retail, for large jackpots. Think about that nutritional impact on the community. A large state may have 15, 20,000 retailers, all of which have a big part of their income from their lottery proceeds. So it's not just you're playing a dollar and you receive money back or not within the game, but there's pieces of the pie that either go to the state in terms of their funds or the retailers or other people. They can hire more employees because they have lottery funds. There's, again, that nutritional impact on the overall businesses that surround and service those industries. So the lottery guy, not only that, he's got people coming in, picking up beer and Twinkies. So I I get it. It's a bit of a draw. Or donuts, maybe (laughs) whatever you'd like. (laughs) That's right. Okay, so you've got job creation, you've got tax revenue. There's obviously, in your industry, and I think experience as a whole, there's certainly a huge tourism impact, which you kind of mentioned with the ships and just it's a component of a bigger package. Here's a question I meant to ask you earlier. Of these different areas, is there one you can say that is clearly the most profitable? Different gaming types, you mean? Well, just the different, you know, the lottery, casinos. It varies by jurisdiction, varies by game. Casinos are profitable more on a mega resort basis. So if you look at a property, a makeup numbers, let's say they may win $100 million in gaming revenue, but also may have $150 million in non-gaming revenue. So where do you say, where's that stop and start in terms of that profitability? Lottery games are different in that, as I was mentioning, that nutritional impact on the lottery retailer, et cetera. So the profit is not just in the games. It's in that ancillary benefit that goes to the jurisdiction via the retailers, via the people that they get to hire. So it's hard to answer that question as a single entity. And also when a mega jackpot's going on and it's a billion dollars plus, the sales get crazy. So those retailers, I think the current Mega Millions run hasn't hit for about four months. So that excitement and that energy builds for a long period of time in that corner grocery store who's making a lot more money because of that role. So again, it's hard to say at any one point in time, what's the most profitable? You could also say Las Vegas for a big fight or on Super Bowl. Super Bowl is actually in Las Vegas this year. So you can imagine the money that they're going to make in that kind of a weekend or week. So it varies wildly, but in terms of the intrinsic value to the commercial entity, to the states that run it, the taxes that are raised, it's pretty amazing business. And it's a great gaming entertainment option. And again, I always use my responsible gaming hat. You never want somebody to play more than they can afford. If somebody would go and have two great dinners and spend $250 a dinner and $500 two great dinners... Or if somebody would go and say, I'm going to play up to $200 in the casino, and then I'll have a great dinner. Is there a difference, right? I had fun playing. I had fun eating two great dinners versus one great dinner. It's how you budget your life. That's what we always aspire to is make sure you can play within your means, never over it. Okay, so I wasn't planning on bringing this up because I get what you're saying. And I mean, I suppose my view is biased, and but I think maybe there is a segment of people that might think this way. And that is, is there 
like some kind of a moral component to this. In other words, just working for what you get. Because you mentioned life-changing money earlier, and that's an interesting phrase. We had a call with a client yesterday who inherited some funds. His mother passed away, and he referred to it as life-changing money. I guess that's the question, because I'm curious to hear your answer as a person who's been immersed in this, because somebody from the outside might say, well, to me, there's more of a, and I hate to use the word moral, but I just, I'm not, I'm a loss for the word. You know, having dinners and doing that is one thing. I get the entertainment value thing, but I guess maybe that's the question is, and I don't know if there's a question in this, going and getting money because you put, you know, a quarter in a slot. I don't know. I just don't know how to reconcile that. Having been a person, and we're a similar generation, right? That you work for what you get. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. Just maybe comment on that because I don't know if there's a question. Let's segregate the discussion, right? Life changing. That's a hope and a dream. So again, back to Mega Millions. Do you know what the odds to win Mega Millions are? Pretty darn small. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> 300 million to one, maybe 301 million to one. I know that because I used to work for a company that developed the game. And it's, well, it may be life changing. If I remember correctly, the odds of getting hit by lightning are one in 7 million. So you think of that, a lot easier to get hit. I always thought if I won the lottery, I'd get hit by lightning the same day. So it would really kill it up. But the reality is that those games are just that pie in the sky if you ever play a lot, I've never played more than $20 on anything. And it's just, hey, luck would have it, luck would have it. But people who play $1,000, $10,000 on that kind of game, you're not playing the odds smart. You're just not. If you play a lottery game for just fun or my son's birthday or whatever it might be once in a while, that's it. I'll take that different from a casino game. And only because I've spent so much time with casino players over time, there's for most of them, there's a real socialization. And that's their fun thing to do with lots of friends, whether they're sitting at a blackjack table with their five best buddies versus going to play golf with their five best buddies, or they're hanging at slot machines with their mom and their sister. That's the socialization part that is part of their life and part of their thing to do. Is it good or bad? Again, go back to responsible gaming. As long as it's within their means and it's something that they enjoy, how is it bad? Everybody has something that they enjoy. Sometimes somebody may eat too much, and that's very unhealthy for them. So is that different from somebody who enjoys casino game? Again, I'm not just spouting. No, that's a good answer, Marty. lived it from my guest's experience over the years, and occasionally you'll hear or see of a bad story, but it's very rare. It really is. No, well, that's good. And you know what? That's a good answer because ultimately it, it's like everything else. What's your motive? I get it. Guys sitting around playing poker. That's never been my deal. The Friday night poker game with the guys. But I get it. That makes, okay, that's good. I'm glad that came up. That's just kind of interesting to me. So getting back on the economics, we talked about benefits, but of course there's always the other side, which there's, there's got to be costs. As much as you have the responsible gamer and the people who have a social, there's always going to be troublemakers, right? I mean, at some point, Money, I guess, no matter what it is, is going to draw in a certain element that's got it. And so maybe speak to that, some of the costs. Yeah. So first of all, I'll go from a security and compliance standpoint, talk about that type of cost, and then talk just what it takes to run the business. So as you can imagine, it's, if anybody who's seen the movie Casino or any things like that, that there is always... A series of checks and balances is all I'm saying, that somebody's always watching somebody, right? So there's surveillance, the eye in the sky, there's people watching people on board, and it's all about being a deterrent. It's all about making sure that somebody's not doing something wrong. Now, I'll say again that there's a benefit being on a cruise ship. One, we know who you are, because typically you have to have a passport. 
So we know who everybody is. You can't go in nameless and faceless. So if you would do something, we have you on surveillance, we know who you are, we find you. So anybody who wants to do something bad, it's very rarely done on a cruise ship. But for those who do try things, and there's been many historical times, we'll typically find out via surveillance, via the people in the pits who understanding what's going on or try to jerry-rig the system. So while there's a cost, and there's a cost in various other things, it's fairly minor in the whole scheme of things on a percentage of revenue. Now, the cost of running business varies by what the business is. So a land-based casino, again, I just look at it like a large hotel. There are various elements in terms of building the property and fitting the property. And on the gaming side of the business, your slot machines will cost you twenty to $25,000 a piece. So you can do the math. If you have a floor of 1,000, 2,000 machines, it's a lot of money right there. The gaming equipment itself, it's a lot of money right there. Your labor is a lot of money there. Although I will say, typically, part of the economic model in gaming is tips. So people will work for, they have a base salary, but they'll also have significant tips from the guests. And usually guests who win are tipping pretty aggressively, whether it's at a table or a slot. So part of the employee's income is base salary plus tips which is beneficial for the property because they don't have to pay the tips, right? So there's other licensing and regulation for land-based casino. We are self-regulated, so we don't have to worry about that piece of the puzzle and expense, obviously, or management leadership. So there's significant travel. In my world, there's significant travel expense because we are global and we have brands all over the world. So that's a big part of what we do as well. So maybe let's dig into then because you have a unique background with your global exposure. And one of the other things that came up in this article I was reading, you've talked about different states and the tax differences and these things, but what about internationally? I mean, can you speak to maybe some of the differences that are culturally based? I think that would be actually kind of interesting. No, no, it's a great topic. And it's funny that one of the things that helped position me for my current role is having global experience. Because again, we run nine global brands four domestic in the U.S., four in Europe, and one in Australia. And gaming habits are different everywhere. And a lot of times I'll talk to a president of a brand who says, why can't our casino business be bigger? And so we have a brand in Germany, German Focus, and Germans just do not go to casinos. They will go do sports betting, but they will not do casinos. Why do you think that is? That's interesting to me. Is there a reason? Historical and cultural, it may, and this is pure speculation on my part, But they're very organized, structured people, and it may have to do with them looking at the facts and saying, I don't think that's going to be good for me long term. (laughs) You know, back to you. No, 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 that's interesting. I have no idea, but I think it's probably more cultural and the prevalence of casinos within their jurisdiction is just not something that they've enjoyed historically. So that's one thing that I've learned quite a bit over time, what people like, what they don't like in each jurisdiction. Australians, for example, will, as our president out there told me once, they'll gamble on snail races if you let them. So which I've been trying to figure out how to monetize for years, but <laughs> I'm going to need like an 85-day sailing to finish the race because they move so slowly. 
But if you look at jurisdictions around Macau, which is where most gaming, Asian gaming is centered today, is 95% table games. And when it's table games, Baccarat is the game of choice in Macau. If you go into a Macau casino, you'll see 500 tables, 490 of which are Baccarat, maybe you see 10 blackjack games, and then a sprinkling of slot machines. It's a tiny piece of the revenue. That's just what they're all about. They love Baccarat. And it's just cultural. That's what they do. That's what they'll play at home. They'll do all kinds of things. So you have to go with the flow of marketing and do whatever is appropriate in that jurisdiction. So you learn that. One thing that was interesting, I remember I worked in London for a couple of years, but the company I worked for also had a property in South Africa in Johannesburg. And I remember spending quite a bit of time when I was there helping out the marketing team down there. And our CEO of the company was coming back for a presentation. I remember the deck I put in front of him, the first page, just like people like free stuff. And that was the front page. And it was no surprise that people around the world, if you give away a toaster or something, they'll come in, get the free one, and then they'll go play. So it wasn't brain surgery on how to attack the problem. You just have to understand, as I always try to tell my team, I don't care what you think. I care what your customers think. Once you understand that consumer behavior, you figure it out either in the type of games you offer or how you incent them to visit you. I was going to ask you then if there's ever, if you can give an example, or you may have just answered it about like the Baccarat. Is that something you just know because that's what people are doing? Or is there any kind of a trial and error? Like, is there any kind of process where perhaps, and I don't know anything from anything, but you say you have a craps table and no one's using it. I mean, is that part of the process or is it just kind of knowing your market, sticking with what works and being very careful about trying to bring in new ideas? Is that sort of how it goes? It's a great question because Macau is something that's been around now for decades and decades, and that's what they play. You don't want to rock the boat on that one. That It is interesting, though, because our assets are mobile, right? So we can put our ships anywhere. And occasionally we'll go in the markets where we don't know the market. So we'll test it out. We'll do as much research as we can. South America is an example where we don't have a ton of ships down there. So you know they typically will like the slots and typical slots and table configuration, but the nuances of that, you don't really know. So in Europe, for example, roulette is more of the game of choice than blackjack or baccarat. In South America, it will vary and you see a little craps, you'll see a little roulette, you'll see a little blackjack, and then you try to learn that market. But to your point, it is trial and error. And again, we can be very fluid, literally, how we move our ships, but also in terms of how we outfit them and what's... We want to serve the guests. What do the guests want? Our square footage is smaller than most land-based casinos. So we want to try to optimize what's best for the largest number of people we can't keep everybody happy. We just don't have enough square footage. That's actually, you know, I was just thinking it'd be interesting for somebody to literally dissect the regions and the countries with the preferences and see if it'd just be kind of an interesting sociological research to kind of theorize the reasons why different things are. I know. I just think that'd be kind of interesting. Okay. So just a couple of things I wanted to get to as we're kind of winding down here. So here's one, because I was thinking about this when you were talking and there is, I'm sure, a faction of the population, you probably know this way better than me, that think that the house, everything favors the house, and there's some kind of a slant to things. My thought was, it's probably just, it's odds. I mean, isn't it at the end of the day, like if you have a deck of 52 cards, I mean, it's just odds of how things are going to work out. It's just simply nothing more than that. You play a game of roulette, you've got numbers and colors, there's odds as to what the, I mean, to me, that's where it really lies. And if somebody were to take the time to dig in, and I don't know the numbers, it's just like you said earlier. I mean, 
the odds of winning a friggin' billion, excuse me, like a billion dollar lotto Powerball deal are minimal. So is that, you know, I guess I'm thinking this rumor that the house has got it all rigged to your disadvantage, it's just odd. There's nothing hidden about their advantages to the games, house advantages, or there wouldn't be a house. Well, maybe right? define that. <laughs> maybe, can you define that? Yeah. So some games are very clear cut. So I'll use blackjack as an example. Blackjack has some nuances because there's typically a fairly small house advantage in blackjack, a couple percentage points. However, that is predicated on the fact that you play optimal strategy. For those of you who know blackjack or played blackjack, that there's certain times when the dealer has a certain card up, you should take another card. You should hit. Other times you should stand. Other times you should double your bet. Other times you should do other things. And there are very strict rules that one should follow if they want to play optimal blackjack to try to get to that percentage as true as possible to its actual odds. Now, the reality is most people don't, or most people who do get tired or have one too many drinks and don't play that well. So blackjack actually has a fairly close call in terms of the odds. The other piece that I would prescribe to, and which I do when I play blackjack, is game management or money management. And basically that means is, again, back to responsible gaming, have a budget in mind. If I lose X, I'm done. Or if I win, why I'm done. And most people don't do that. They'll think they're on a streak and just keep going. Or they've lost, I'll double up. And it's play it as entertainment and you'll have a good time and you'll be within your budget. But again, it also makes the odds as true as possible, close to the real odds if you're playing it the right way. That's interesting. Yeah. And that actually makes sense. So it really all comes down. I try. <laughs> well, no, it just I mean, that's what I thought. It just comes down to discipline. I mean, if you sit and you continue to go and go and go, I mean, at some point... The odds will chew you up. Yeah, because that's just the way it is. I'll give you an example. Horse racing, one thing we didn't talk about. Horse and dog racing. Oh, good. And I have a lot of fun with horse racing. My wife and I, as you know well, will enjoy going to our close track, Del Mar, and just have fun and goof around. I know that the hold factor, what the house holds and the state holds, is huge in horse racing. And I know that. Am I ever going to win, beat it? No. So what we do is try to have some fun, have some laughs along the way, get a bite, and just enjoy the weather and watching the horses run. I never go there thinking I'm going to win because the hold factor is ridiculous. But that's okay. That's the price of admission that you're paying for that gaming entertainment. This actually makes sense to me. I've never personally been, I just, the thought of, I get what you're saying and it's all, it gets back to how you look at it and what the purpose is. And if it's experience versus I got to pay my mortgage and it's a Hail Mary in life. I get all that. That makes complete sense. So here's the thing. This is a couple more questions. And you mentioned when we talked about earlier too, about Vegas and just this idea of how the casinos aren't the driver of revenue anymore, the way they once maybe were that it's this whole experience of going to Las Vegas, of shows, of the days of the $2 prime rib. Let me rephrase that. Gaming revenues are not down. It's just non-gaming are up. Okay. It's added. That's good. Good clarification. Meaning that there's all these other things. The experience has grown beyond just sitting in a casino for eight hours. There's all these other things you can do. So on a ship, and if you can answer this, maybe I'm answering my own question because the thought was, is, okay, why do you need it if you've got all these other things that are an enjoyable, like especially on a cruise? I mean, gosh, you've got these visits to these ports. You've got these great meals. I mean, I've never even been on a cruise, but from what I, you've told me, I mean, it's just a bazillion things you can do. Why include it? Is that a fair question? 
Yeah, no, and again, our goal as a company is to provide as many as many as possible for our guests to give them great experience. And casino is just one of those. We are different from a land-based casino because that's always the primary reason for your visit in a land-based casino, typically. For us, casino typically is not. It's one of the amenities, in addition to spa, in addition to your shore excursions, in addition to your entertainment, in addition to your great food and beverage, that we're just one of those amenities. And if we were to take that away, there's a significant portion of that population, of our cruise population, wouldn't be happy. They want that as an option. Even if it's for 15 minutes a day or 15 minutes for their entire cruise, they want the option to do something a little different. A lot of times we'll get people who've never played in a casino in their life and they'll come and ask our step, how do you play this slot machine thing? Or how do you play dice? Oh my God, craps is a tough one. But it's fun almost when you see that and just they just want to experience and get a little tickle of what's going on and try it out. It's just why do we do there's so many other things that we offer on board that you say, God, why would you do that? And it's just to give people a diverse experience. Actually, I could see where that, especially on a ship, it would be a safe place for people to kind of dip their feet feed into something they normally wouldn't do because there's not the intimidation factor that you may have at a large casino. The one thing I will say for our brands, and I think throughout the industry, the crew and the incredible hospitality and smiling faces you get is unbelievable. They travel the world on a daily basis. That's their life. And they have this remarkable attitude that they bring to work every day. I'm not here selling cruising, which you should do, but it's just a different experience than you get. If you go to a downtown casino in Las Vegas, you're not going to see a lot of those big smiles. You're going to have a hardened veteran who's been doing this for 35 years and said, do you want to hit? And it's a little different experience from what you'll see from a young lady from Romania who has a smile plastered on her face the entire time you're there. It makes it a little more pleasant. No, that's great. Okay, last question. This is totally random. Do you have a favorite movie that is kind of based around card playing or gambling or anything? <laughs> no, no, I actually have one. I've got two, but I'm just curious if there's a movie. God, that- there's so many. So I mentioned Casino, which Great about casinos, obviously. It is brutal, but it has some truisms in it in terms of the industry, which I always laugh at. And it's quoted in many of my meetings all the time. So that's probably one. There's other ones. We mentioned sports bidding, not as well-known one called California Split, I believe. And it was with James Kahn, the great godfather, Sonny Corleone. He played a degenerate sports gambler. And it was just a great, great movie. But really sad, depressing, because he kept losing, (laughs) but it was really a beautifully done movie. I mean, there's a lot of other great ones over time. What's yours? I was going to say there's two. I loved Rounders with Matt Damon. Pay that man his money. I love that at the end, man, because you know what? To me, that's a guy who has some skill. I just, I enjoyed that a lot. And then the other one was uh, 21, I think it is, the kid who's the Harvard kid who counts cards. Yeah. They go and he kind of outsmarts the teacher. And that was a true story, you know. Yeah, no, I enjoyed that. I thought that was actually pretty fun. So anyhow. That actually was a fascinating true story of card counters. It was a professor who solicited his most brilliant kids to become card counters. And what they would do on the weekends from Cambridge, they'd fly to Las Vegas and try to beat the house. Yeah, no, that was a good one too. So, hey, listen, Marty, this is great. I tell you what, I really appreciate the time. It's one of those areas that, I don't know, I won't say there's taboo 
but you don't really think about it as I don't think most people dig in and think about gambling as a big contributor to the uh, the, the economy. But when you start digging in to explain it the way you did, particularly all the ancillary industries that are affected, jobs, all of it, I think you can see it in a different light. Because I think, and maybe you'd agree, last kind of final thought here is there's sometimes this probably at first blush, you know, when you think of gambling, you do think of like the casino and a lot of the negative stuff. But there is another side to it. And I think that's kind of, I appreciate what you brought out, which is there is an entertainment aspect, which it sounds like most people really are kind of tied to that. I think there's always this perception of extremes where somebody's gambling away their house and all that. But it sounds to me, I think that's just like you said, a small percentage. And most people are just, it's a part of what they do to just have fun and let us let off some steam and hang out with their friends. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's why we call it gaming entertainment. Yeah. It's not an investment strategy. They should stick with you for the investment strategy. <laughs> and just this is something you do to have have a little fun. So, well, listen, thanks so much. As the Brits would say, a little flutter. A little flutter. Marty, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. And thanks for joining me on Upthinking Finance. All right, Emerson, it's been great. Thank you for having me. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.